this is Larry Lessig. So all of us have a pretty good idea about the miserable story of the history of the internet. Though the protocol was launched in 1983, it's 15 years after that that the platform really begins to enter mainstream public life. And after the turn of the century, there's a brief but critical period of enormous hope. I, of course, was a doomer from the start about the internet. My first book, Code and Other Laws of Cyberspace, celebrated the values that the internet then embraced, but the doom I promised was that these values would be corrupted by the influence of both commerce and government, and especially commerce and government working together. Yet mine was the minority view. There was endless optimism everywhere. And no doubt, there was lots to feed that optimism. As we heard in the conversation with Ben Smith, there was an explosion in viral media, which we should understand is media that spreads because people want to spread it. In this sense, that media was deeply democratic. It wasn't the elite editors at CBS or NBC that were deciding what we could watch and what we couldn't watch. It was my friend pointing me to something that she thought I would like to see, and me doing the same for her and 15 other people. Or the collective assessment of thousands upvoting content, or otherwise making it popular on whatever platform it happened to live on. The birth of the internet in the mind of the public was this new and authentic and largely great way to share with each other. And that was a reason for endless hope. And then it all began to change. If I had to summarize how or why it had to change, I'd say something like this. The internet got a business model, advertising. And that business model drove the platforms to find ways to maximize engagement. At first, it was viral geniuses that deployed their art to best maximize engagement. They had a sense about what was going to take off, what kind of content was likely to trigger the reaction of many, many people. But slowly, the platforms learned that machines could actually do that engagement game better. Increasingly sophisticated AI learned how best to addict us, to draw us in, to send us down rabbit holes of content. And unfortunately for us, the kind of content that did that best was the worst sort of content for us as individuals or as citizens. Like the fast food or processed food industry learned long ago, it just turns out that the most addictive food for the human body as it has evolved turns out not to be the healthiest food for the human body as it has evolved. And so too did the digital engagement industry learn exactly the same thing that the most addictive content for the human mind is not the healthiest content for the human mind. Yet as the industry raced to find ever more addictive content for us to consume, there were some pushing it in the other way. My guest today is one of those some. Eli Pariser was born to the world of viral media just after 9-11, as you'll hear in our conversation. After the attacks on that tragic day, he decided to engage constructively with how best we should respond. He stood up a website about multilateralism in response to those attacks. That website went viral. 
in the sense of viral circa 2001. He then moved to Move On, developing an extraordinary video campaign, Bush in 30 Seconds, and leading Move On to become the most important online progressive movement in the history of this nation. But as you'll hear, as Eli watched what the web was becoming, he became fearful it was becoming so much less than it should be. In 2011, he wrote an extraordinary book that glimpsed the future of the ugly internet, the filter bubble, demonstrating how search engines were crafting a different picture of the world for each of us and how the ideals of a common conversation to resolve a common problem were not just ideals that did not fit the business model of the internet, they never would. And then to counter this dynamic, or what we can think of as the BuzzFeed dynamic, the go viral, whatever it takes dynamic, he started Upworthy, a site devoted to sharing content that brings us together or helps us understand as one people better. And then, since 2018, he has been working on Civic Signals, a site with the goal of creating more public-friendly online spaces. If there's hope for health, it will come from the kind of spaces that these projects construct, if at least they can be successful. I hope you'll enjoy this conversation with one of my heroes in the healthy internet movement, Eli Pariser. Stay tuned. Eli, thank you so much for talking. Um, so you've had an extraordinary career front row in the life of the internet, and both from its moment when we all thought it had enormous potential to do good, to the moment when you kind of recognized the architecture of why it wouldn't necessarily do good to the place you are right now where you're trying to figure out how to rebuild it or to rebuild this to make it so it does do good. But let's start at the beginning. You actually get involved online around the 9-11 events where you're trying to achieve the impossible. This just shows how optimistic <laughs> and naive you were <laughs> of convincing America not to respond to 9-11 in violence, um, to find a more a constructive way to respond. Um, but tell us a little bit about that story. What happened and, and what got you going? Yeah, I mean, so I should say, like, I was, I, I grew up as someone who was a geek and, and like, excited about these new technologies and read my Wired magazine. And, um, and at the same time, someone who, my, my parents were, were teachers and, felt like, uh, you know, figuring out how to harness this amazing new tool on behalf of healthier, healthier communities was like a really cool kind of thing to do. And so um, I was working at a nonprofit as the IT guy when the 9-11 attacks happened. And, you know, after going through the initial like shock and, and horror, you know, somehow very quickly latched onto this thought that this was kind of one of those moments in history when things could go a number of different directions and that one of the directions they might go is kind of pretty bad military adventurism. <laughs> and maybe if enough of us had enough presence of mind in that moment, we could push it and we could stop that. So, you know, I'm, I'm like a 20 year old activist at this point who knows how to code HTML and um, 
I just put up a website that was kind of making this argument about multilateralism um, and you know bringing the world together to stop terrorism versus like just going it alone. You know, so this was back like uh, dial-up modem era, and I put the website up and sent it to some friends and logged off for four days because that's what I guess I did then. And um, <laughs> when I logged back on, like four days later, uh, you know, I'll never forget. It was sort of like the the progress bar of how many emails left to download kept going backwards. And it was like, you know, I thought I had 50 and then I thought I had 300 and then I thought I had 4,000. <laughs> and um, yeah, that was like my first kind of viral viral moment on the internet. But it, the email had circulated hugely. There were 50,000 people who had signed the petition. And um, I started getting, you know, emails in all these different languages saying, like, what are we going to do about this? And so, it was, you know, it's amazing to me. And it's still amazing. Like, the the ability of someone who's 20 and has no resources and no connections to find, you know, like, a huge group of people. It was, it was remarkable. And, and that's what kind of got me into this. And... You know, now it's much more complicated, but it, it, there was something magical about sort of that that ability. Yeah, and and what's striking about that success is that it was all what we would call organic growth, right? It was all people who saw your website and shared it with their friends, and their friends shared it with their friends. It's it's the kind of beautiful image of like how ideas would spread in the context of the internet. Totally, and you know, and I I had kind of marinated in in a bunch of ideas about how that was like, if not inevitable, at least like a strong, you know, that, that, I mean, the word that we did always used to use about the internet was democratizing. It was going to be this democratizing force and power was going to move outward. And here was an example of that. And that was kind of like the, the frame that I had in my head at that time for what was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and I assume there was no advertising tied to your, <laughs> Um, you didn't buy ads to kind of sell your uh, petition? No, I didn't have, I mean, I didn't have any money uh, to do that. I mean, Mm -hmm. it was literally free and it wasn't, I mean, honestly, it wasn't like a concept that I would have had even had it been possible, right? Like I I was, Mm -hmm. I was just playing with something and, and striking a chord. Okay, so you're extraordinarily successful with that. Obviously, then you must have become got, come to the radar of MoveOn, which had been started before right. that um, by Wes and Joan, who, who had had this brilliant idea to put together a list to get Congress to move on from the craziness of trying to impeach uh, President Clinton. There were a lot of really serious problems, the point was, and just censure the guy and move on. Um, yeah. Um, so they must have seen your success, and, and did they reach out to you and say, "Why don't you take your magic, bring your magic here to move on?" Yeah. So, um, so I had actually, you know, we sort of had a nice like I, I had reached out to them because I was like, I'm 20 and I have this half a million people who are starting to write me emails asking me like, "What are we going to do next?" I don't know. And uh, <laughs> and you know, I had seen Move On doing a similar style of of organizing. You know, and we we quickly hit it off, and I joined um, initially to focus on kind of foreign policy. What became the like Iraq War movement? 
Mm-hmm. But then at least Wikipedia thinks you did Bush in 30 seconds. Is that true? That's true. Yeah, no. So uh, that was, that was, so basically we, you know, that's, that, that was in 2004. We try, we try to stop the war. It's another really exciting, I mean, this is also kind of a moment where conservatism was extremely, sort of impossible to imagine now ascendant in the sense that there were 70 or 80% approval ratings for a president, which hasn't happened since then. <laughs> and, yeah. um, you know, people were burning French fries or whatever. Like there were, there's just kind of this like fever. And so the, the potential, so, so the Iraq war movement, um, was all the more remarkable in that context, which was like a bunch of people who were not in line with that managed to create a really broad, you know, multi-class anti-war protest movement and had millions of people on the streets and, you know, but did not stop the war. And so then uh, the the project became political and um, we decided to do this project called Bush in 30 Seconds, which was like upload, you know, make your own political ad and upload it to uh, our website and people will vote on it, which at the time was just not a not a concept that anyone had ever thought of to to to, to crowdsource advertisements. Yeah, and I, I mean, I I thought it was incredible. I stole all of the ads. I still have them <laughs> on my machine, and I watch some of them. I have my favorites. Um, one of the most successful crowdsourcing um, efforts ever, I think, even since. I don't know that I've seen. I mean, because the number of really great ads. I mean, was what I mean. There's some really great, great ads, but yeah, the number of really great ads is really extraordinary. Yeah, no, it was a really strong. I mean, this is pre YouTube, um, you know. So yeah, uh, there were just a, a whole bunch of really great creators, and you know, again, and and you were part of this movement too. You know, there's just a sense of like, there's so much creativity out there that's been gatekept by you know the existing institutional structures and if we can only get them out of the way you know there's going to be like like it's funny to look back on it and think like oh that was really good because at the time it felt like the tip of the iceberg like this is just the start of what's going to be this amazing efflorescence of creativity and and voices Mm -hmm. you know coming coming online Mm -hmm. and it just seemed all good couldn't imagine how it was going to spin bad yet um so I mean, so you then stay and move on, right? Um, and you become president of the board, and this becomes your gig. When did you start? When, what's the birth of like the skepticism that's expressed so powerfully in still one of the main books to read about the era, uh, Filter Bubble, um, which doesn't come out, I guess, until twenty eleven or yeah. sometime like that. Um, so y- you know, I think it, I, I I think it started. There's a guy named Matt Hinman who somehow I got, I saw some writing that he was doing about the blogosphere. And there was just this weird moment, you know, so the, so the left-wing blogosphere, or really the blogosphere as a whole, you know, came up during the similar time and had this kind of similar political ethos. And Marcos Melitzis, who did the Daily Coast, wrote this book called Crashing the Gates or something that was sort of this like, you know, we're going to, we're going to get the gatekeepers out of there. And, but there was this weird thing that Matt pointed out where 
all of a sudden, kind of 20, 2006, 2007, there stopped being new blogs that really broke out. Like people were making them, but there was this long period where you could just like build your own blog and you could become famous and it just sort of like would happen organically. And at some point that just froze. And so I thought that was really interesting and kind of eerie and ominous and pushed against a lot of the other thinking that I was thinking about. And his argument was that the way that the web was structured was not inherently democratizing, (laughs) that actually there were some strong forces that were pointing toward centralization. And, you know, if PageRank is the way that people find uh, links, if Google is the way that people find links, and the New York Times gets linked to a lot, but it doesn't link out a lot, that you're going to have this kind of like uh, growing New York Times supremacy. And that's true of smaller entities as well. And so I think it, it th- hearing that got me thinking about power and these networks. And I think like maybe just like poked a little bit at some of the naivete of what I had been feeling was like this, like just dramatically democratic thing. So you started experimenting to demonstrate that there was such a thing as a bubble, filter bubble. Y- yes. And I was uh, somewhere in there. I mean, I read code somewhere in there, and that also was a contributing thing in my mind because, you know, in 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 that book, which was very important for me, and thank you, um, you know, the the notion. I just had this this other thought about sort of, okay, well, if code is law, like who's writing the laws here, and I think seeing, you know, Facebook take off and seeing Yahoo and some of the other, just like uh, starting to notice that a lot of the digital laws were being written by these advertising companies. That was also something that started to make me wonder about (laughs) whether this was going to turn out the way that that we thought it would. So anyway, um, so so I started, so, so really what happened was um, you know, Move On was an email-based mm-hmm. organization, and but our members increasingly were on Facebook, and so I got very interested in like, well, how do we how do we adapt to this new medium? And what we started to realize was like, oh, it's not as simple as just like putting Move On petition links on this on Facebook because people don't click or share Move On petition links on Facebook. What they want on Facebook is media, it seems like. And they want to just like, they're not looking to go do something, they're lo- which is what the mode you're in an email, they're looking to like consume content. And so and so that got me thinking about like, well, this is this is a really important uh difference. And what does it mean if increasingly both media and reaching people are owned by this company that has this algorithm? that's personalized. (laughs) And so that was really kind of like the on-ramp to playing with Facebook and starting to think about like, what are the political dynamics of the Facebook algorithm? And, and did you, I mean, when you first began to see the bubble, were you surprised by it or did, by the time you started testing for it, you're pretty sure you're going to see what you saw? I was, um, you must've had a moment where you sat there and just typed a search and ask somebody to type the same search on their yeah. laptop. Maybe you guys were all so similar, so it wouldn't have been very different. But 
um, or even on a on an incognito. Yeah, no, no. I mean, that was that was actually. I think Facebook behaved kind of like I thought, but I felt like people weren't paying attention to what it meant. And then Google, um, you know, when I found out that Google was also using kind of like user data to personalize itself, that was surprising. And, and you know, like I still tell people that today, and they're shocked. Like, I think there is some yeah. fundamental way in which the way that people understand what Google does is different than what Google is actually doing for some use cases. And people are not clear about that. <laughs> but, you know, I had someone, uh, it was it was around the protests uh, in, in the Arab Spring, and I had someone Google, I had a bunch of people Google Egypt and send me screenshots. I was really surprised by the variety of, of screenshots I got because the group was pretty democratic, de- demographically similar. It wasn't like a wildly split group. Mm-hmm. And for some of them, Arab Spring content was right at the top. And for some of them, it didn't exist. And so that was a kind of like, wow. that was a, a big moment for me in realizing it, it felt like everyone understands that everyone's view of Facebook is going to be different. But the idea that we're looking at this portal that's ostensibly, you know, sort of meritocratically raising the truth and it's different for everyone, that was uh, set some alarm bells off for me, for sure. I mean, I remember meeting you uh, when we were at a similar event. We were at the same event and um, and you were describing this and um, and you had this really kind of terrified sense about you. You were like, how do we do democracy in a world where everybody sees a different set of facts? And it was, you know, obviously something that those of us who think about this now think about all the time. Um, but I but I remember feeling you were one of you were one of the first people that I ever came across who was making it tangible. And I remember feeling I didn't have an answer for you. I don't know what we do in a world where people have different views of the world because they're being fed different views based on these judgments that the the algorithm is making about it. Yeah, I, I mean, I think what I, w- I was really trying to kind of raise an alarm about the way we were structuring information systems. And, I you know, I should say, like, th- this conversation about sort of echo chambers or uh, bubbles or whatever you want to call them, I call them filter bubbles, is is old, right? Like it's, I, I remember reading Nick Negroponte, you know, the, the Media Lab guy in the 90s at some point saying, you know, everybody's going to have their own personalized newspaper and you won't be able to believe it. Yeah. But, but I think what was different was seeing it happen and not only seeing it happen, but seeing it happen without anyone really thinking about like, well, what does that mean for for democracy? Like, <laughs> what is where is this heading us? And um, that that's what I was kind of trying to call attention to. Yeah, I mean, I I was at a conference at Yale in the middle nineties, maybe ninety five, um, and Eugene Volokh and Cass Sunstein. Mm-hmm. wrote these competing essays about the Daily Me. Um, right. But what was missing at that stage was like understanding why. Like what would the what would the um technical architecture be that would actually produce that difference? Um and how and what would be driving it. Now what's interesting about the the filter bubble is you can imagine like the first stage of the filter bubble is just the byproduct of the search engine trying to figure out what sort of things you want to see. But the second stage of the filter bubble is when you've got 
advertising-driven platforms that are trying to pull you in, to hook you on content, because they know that, that this type of content will make you much more likely to consume even more content. So the, to drive you down some rabbit hole so you become you know, somebody who watches this thing 24-7, um, well, if one could. But, uh, but the point is that then it's not just a kind of passive consequence of just people having different things that they're interested in. Now you're constructing the public that is going to have these different views and maximizing that difference because that turns out to be the most profitable for the platform. Yeah. You know, and the and the feedback loops between those those things are significant. You know, sort of user platform algorithm and media. I think even when I wrote the book, I initially sort of thought of them as set uh, set things, but in reality, like, uh, and having run a media company at one point, like the media companies change their behavior based on the incentives set by the algorithm. That changes what users see, which in turn changes their identity which then, or how they see their identity, which then changes their media preferences. And so all of these things become interlinked in this way that's, you know, kind of self-reinforcing. Yeah, it's self-reinforcing, but but again, I imagine I didn't get to meet uh, you in the middle of that recognition, um, especially when you're running uh, Upworthy. But even more scary for the consequences of democracy. I mean, it's one thing to like, like recognize you're being passively sorted based on your preferences. But when you're yes. actively being constructed based on what turns out to sell the most ads, we have no historical basis for understanding whether this is going to be good or bad. And all the intuitions are it would be bad. Yeah. No, I think that's right. And I think the thing that popped out to me when I was doing the you know filter bubble research was just how... Um, unlikely it was that that a a media environment that was constructed purely around commercial ends was going to serve all of the like social ends that we actually implicitly were expecting of media at that time even even in America even in the free market society that we're in still we had this expectation that like well of course you wouldn't just put junk on the front page of your newsletter newspaper because there's a duty you know, at the same time, we weren't, there's no interest in holding those platforms to any sense of a similar duty. And um, so when you put those things side by side, let alone like a country that actually invested in public media, like most other countries of our, uh, you know, wealth and scale, you know, it looks really, really different as an approach to how you do media. Yeah, I mean, if you think your job is to be news director of CBS News in 1975, um, there's a lot of judgments you make um, about what's going to be on the news or not. And, you know, in 1975, those judgments are just basically, what does it make sense for people to understand? Like, what do they need to know? Um, and it's not like, how do I turn them into right-wing crazies or left-wing crazies? Um, and I don't really have any interest in making sure they watch 10 times the amount of news that they're watching right now, because it's just, you know, a couple slices during the day when they're going to see the news and that's it. So the incentives of that editor are very different from the incentives of, you know, the guy running the Facebook newsfeed, because that guy um, or that woman um, is deeply invested in making sure that you go from 30 minutes to an hour to two hours to three hours. And the AI that does it, of course, <laughs> doesn't even know what the thing is that they're trying to feed you. They're just 
testing which things to feed you that turn you into a crazy person as opposed to, you know, a, a balanced person. Yeah. Now, this is the part of the story I'd not really thought of when I was thinking about, you know, you um, in your history before. And that is the, so one of the early news content organizations that tried to leverage this, obviously, was uh, BuzzFeed. Mm-hmm. And BuzzFeed itself goes through this this kind of um, innocent cycle Um Early in BuzzFeed's, you know, career, I think there's like this, the quiz where you have to tell the color of um, some dress and people, you know, two thirds saw it as violet and the other third saw it as gray or whatever. Yeah. Or some weird thing right. about that. No, and that dress. exploded yeah. and all of a sudden, everybody's like sharing it and they're so excited about how amazing this platform is. And we're all different, but we all get along because of this. And then... Obviously, it shifts into a very different direction as it begins to build on the business model of how do we get people engaged. And it's less concerned about, you know, the edifying content that it might be sharing. Mm -hmm. Was that what motivated your thought that, you know, maybe Upworthy could, I mean, like, what what was the set of uh, thoughts that got you to think uh, what we need to do now is to get Upworthy as opposed to BuzzFeed or anything else that's out there? Yeah, so, I mean, coming out of writing the filter bubble, I was interested in... Uh, I felt like, okay, I'm not probably going to change Facebook's ranking priorities. Or maybe, like, I've tried my, I've made a book-length argument about why Facebook should change Facebook's ranking priorities. But let's suppose that it doesn't. And how would we elevate content about sort of civically valuable, civically important issues in an engagement feed-based system? And I was sort of worried about two things. One was kind of the, like, siloing and kind of, uh, rabbit hole problem. But the other piece was I was I was kind of equally worried. And it's funny because this is sort of the trajectory that Facebook's gone on actually now that I think about it. But I was equally worried that all the political stuff was just going to go away entirely. And that it was just entertainment over politics was going to win every time. And so Facebook actually, like if you look at the last 15 years, basically went in the one direction, which was like, we're going to amp up silos. And then now they're in the other direction where they're like, turn all of the politics off. We we don't want anyone to ever say anything about politics. We're just going to like decrease the traffic to anything that's hard news. But Upworthy was kind of a, tr- trying to trying to figure out how do you do that? So how do you take a piece of content about climate change and get it in front of a million people in what we felt was like a hostile environment for that that kind of thing? And learned a lot about uh, <laughs> about Facebook and about media in that um, in that journey. Um, and ended up concluding, like, you know, that wasn't the right structure. You know, sort of VC-backed media has its own sort of incentive problems. But then, but in the technology of Upworthy, I mean, BuzzFeed goes early on from basically the intuition of the editors um, to trying to systematize uh, incent- um, feedback loops. Um, yeah. Was Upworthy like a bunch of, like good souls just deciding which content should go up or were there oh, no. A-B testing on stuff? Yeah, no, we were doing, we were doing A-B testing a, a lot and, you know, trying to figure out like, how do we present the, these ideas in a way that they will be most palatable to folks online to share. And, um, you know, I think uh, we were, we were part of the same kind of cohort, but for us, uh, we were exclusively, we, we felt like it was a differentiation to be exclusively focused on stuff that had some kind of meaningfulness to it. And so the dress, which was actually, I think Ben Ben Smith's uh, book, Traffic, covers this whole era pretty well. And yeah, he sort of talks about um, 
the dress as this the sort of last fun argument that the internet had. Like it was part of the fun of it was that it just divided it divided people. It was very divisive, but it was randomly divisive, and it was divisive over something that had no real world meaning. So you could kind of yell and join a tribe, but the tribe wasn't correlated with your normal tribe, and the yelling didn't wasn't serious. And it did feel that way, you know. But we were kind of trying to go in this direction of, you know, well, how do we bring people together around, you know, a little more kind of socially socially relevant stuff. But did you find that there was a strategy to bringing diverse ideological people together and seeing, you know, what might be thought of as ideologically predictable stories differently. I mean, so, you know, I remember Upworthy, a lot of really great stories that me on the left loved seeing up, you know, lifted up. Right. Was there a trick to like getting people who were not on the left to see them and be excited about them? Well, we were, I mean, uh, we, we were pretty well read, um, you know, not deep into conservative land, but we reached a whole bunch of, part of the purpose of the thing was like, most people are just not that interested in politics at all, not that interested in news at all. It's easy to forget in our online circles that that's true, right? But like most people consume a vanishingly small amount of hard news in America. Mm -hmm. So we were trying to provide a kind of like entry point that was around storytelling and around characters and around kind of bits of emotion to get you into thinking about climate change at all rather than the the normal approach, which would be, you know, like something either catastrophic or heavily data-driven um, that tends to kind of turn people off. So that, I mean, I think that mm-hmm. that works for a lot of people. It doesn't work for getting extreme partisans together. But I think if you can like just engage people around, you know, here, here are some uh, compelling stories about the world with a, with a character you're rooting for or whatever, like that's, that does work. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I, I assume it's fair to say that Upworthy didn't prove to be the solution to our problem. No. <laughs> and that you entered a stage where you realize you're going to have to do a lot of really deep thinking and experimenting. I think what's interesting about New Public is its yeah. keen desire to experiment. What what is that what was that transition like and where do you think you are now and what's the reason to be hopeful that there's a lifeboat or lifeboats out of this that yeah gives us what we thought we had. Well, going to the lifeboats for a second like I mean if you want to like capture the overall arc that we've talked about so far, you know, I think there is a way in which there was something to the early internet that the, that move on was a part of because it was based on email, which was an open protocol that not owned by a company that, um, well, I don't think it was like ideologically neutral. I do think that, um, it didn't bake in a bunch of the commercial incentives that have turned out to be really poisonous. And then we had this encroachment of Facebook, which we talked about. And then we had sort of the Facebook era. And I spent a while trying to convince Facebook to be different and these, you know, these big platforms trying to be different. And then I spent a while like being like, well, I guess we live in their world. We've just got to figure out the best way to do what we want to do in Facebook's world. And I think where I ended up at the end of all of that was this isn't viable. Like, we we cannot structure our public sphere this way if we want to continue to be a working pluralistic democracy. It's just not going to happen. Never happened in history. And 
Um, if we don't take a bigger step backwards and start to think about sort of how we get off this, like, you know, cruise ship or, or, uh, you know, boat and, and onto something else, like, like we're never going to be able to sort of get, get the Titanic to reform itself from within. Um, and so, um, so that's kind of where new, new public started heading, which is, um, I think there's, there's two pieces there. One is like, how do we start from a place of formulating what is the media environment? What is the digital structure that we need in order to accomplish the goals that we have as a society? And how do we work backwards from that? And it's not just, it's not to say that there isn't a role for, uh, you know, big advertising companies. We can't depend on them entirely for, to, 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 to be the conversational space that we need. And then two, I think it actually does hark back a bit to what was interesting about that early internet moment, which is I, th- I do think there are some dynamics to open open systems, open protocol-based systems that are different than centralized advertising monopolies. And I think there's an exciting mm-hmm. movement right now toward re- rediscovering and reimagining the internet you know, built on some of those ideas. Mm-hmm. So what do they look like? What are the most exciting things coming out? So, uh, you know, I think Mastodon and Blue Sky are two emergent networks that are capturing some of those principles and applying them to social media. Are they great and will they solve all of society's problems? Not yet. But I think the thing that they do do is they are starting to offer examples of what it would look like to declare independence from having Mark Zuckerberg decide what everyone sees and doesn't see and start to make those decisions in a more like actually democratic or self-governed way. And I think that's like, let let me just ask you, yeah, let me just push, push a little bit on that point. Um, So there's a difference between Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk, right? So Elon Musk is pushing Twitter in a direction that has a very self-conscious political spin to it. Like he, he has a conception of what he wants his page to look like. Zuckerberg is just turning the decision over to the AI to decide what's the right mix of content that's going to get people really engaged. Both of those, I think, we agree are not good, yeah. um, but they're not good for different reasons, um, right? And, and so w- which are you most concerned about, the Zuckerbergs or the Elon Musks? I actually think in the long run, they probably converge because I think they're both, mm-hmm. I think the fundamental thing that is true about them is that they are, you know, homogenous, huge centralized systems. <laughs> and I don't think you can build democracies inside of homogenous, huge centralized systems. Like, I think if it, the, the thing that de Tocqueville discovered in America when he came here and looked around was this, like, overlay of lots of different weird little institutional structures that hadn't existed in Europe, but was starting to take place here. And there were Grange Halls and, you know all these farmers unions and all these little. So I think that is the template for the kind of structures that we want. And I I guess I think sort of the, the Mark Zuckerberg ends up becoming the Elon Musk in some way. And that at some point someone's going to, with a centralized grasp on power is going to make decisions that we don't like. And we can either decide that we're okay with that as a kind of autocratic structure that we're participating in, or we can decide that we're not, and that there need to be a bunch of more self-governed and overlaid systems. Now, the next question that comes is like, 
isn't that just a bunch of homogenous groups? And I think it could be, but I think it doesn't have to be, right? And so that's why at New Public, our focus is on kind of what we call digital public spaces, but basically places where you do get some cross-mixing of groups and tribes, but you know, also kind of at a scale where they're governable. And self so imagine yeah. So so let's 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 say take take your wildest dreams, like what the mm-hmm. world looks like if you're wildly successful. How do those communities relate to the continuing existence of something like Facebook or or Fox News or MSNBC? Like what what is the do you imagine them displacing that? Do you imagine attention shifting to them over that? Um What's what's the stable long term story? So I think the I, I mean I guess I sort of feel like I think a lot about churches and uh, other kinds of civic institutions that you know you don't necessarily spend most of your time in, but they call out a certain kind of way of being in you, and I, you know I think like you, you don't you don't have to spend the vast majority of your time like. Mostly people are going to malls and going to restaurants and not not like being, you know, upstanding citizens with their lives. Like we've all got other stuff to do. But spending a little bit of time in these spaces reorients our, our beliefs about like what's possible to do together and what's possible to do across business, uh, across, across difference. So that's kind of like the place that I would want to start is, you know, and I think there are lots of places in people's lives that are really meaningful, that are really important, where you could do that. So for example, like public schools, as messed up as they are in the United States, still are places where people end up in proximity with a bunch of other people across class, across race, and often across political difference, but with a very shared, very, very like acute shared interest, right? (laughs) Nobody is really doing a whole lot of work to think about, like, how do we take the whole sort of digital aura of a public school and bring it together in a more positive way? That's not anyone's job. But to me, it's the kind of digital institution that absolutely needs to exist and that could produce a lot of social benefit. Local newspapers are another example where, you know, you sort of have the the old broadcast model declining. But I grew up in a small town and that that where is the place where we have a thoughtful conversation to each other about each other that still hasn't really been solved as a as a digital problem and if you're trying to do it with a facebook group you end up optimizing for you know sort of memes and the most conflict there's a better way to do that too so i really think like you know you don't have to spend most of your time there in order to um in order to 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 relate differently and then i also think there's just kind of this like virtuous cycle of belonging, where so much of why people are drawn to national federal politics, and by the way, this is like a little mea culpa thing for me. Like, I think when I look back and move on, there's so much that I'm proud of. But one thing I'm not proud of, or that I think we contributed to negatively, is the kind of the federation, federalization of politics. And I guess like in today's era, it's like I, I could spend a lot of time and energy trying to convince Joe Manchin to think like I do. And it's just never, I'm never going to convince Joe Manchin. <laughs> Whereas if I direct that energy at my local, uh, you know, district member, like I have a fighting chance of actually influencing that person or changing how mm-hmm. they think. And so because of the media structures that we've been living in lately, 
everyone's been sucked into these kind of hyperpartisan federal federalized identities. And what's interesting about local politics is if you can reorient local politics there, it's just weirder, right? And there are these weird coalitions that pop up and who's for dogs in the park and who's against dogs doesn't line up neatly. And you start to come into contact with people who aren't just part of the like mass on the other side. So I guess I feel like that's that's another thing we need our media system to do is kind of like reorient ten, attention away from sort of brand name federal politics and towards some of this like local stuff, which is valuable to people because it actually affects our lives. And it's really interesting when that happens, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, you know, so anyway, that's 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 a place that I can see a lot of promise. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if you know the book Broken News by Chris Starwald. Um it um Heard about it, does yeah. come out, but I you will find if when you read it, you're gonna find that um there's a lot of overlap here because his main point is the loss of local journalism means we spend less time in places where we're not politically um polarized. Um, because exactly as you would say, there are people have weird views about dog parks and they're not left and right. Um and instead we've focus most of our attention in the national news context, which is cheaper per person to do right. than local news. And it's more polarizing. Um, and so that we've got to find a way to re- revitalize. But it sounds like you're building the infrastructure of local re- revitalization, right? I mean, that that's what... So in 10 years, when we look back and, and recognize New Public has saved uh, democracy around the world, like... What, what will the what will the inflection points of that look like? That you've gotten you know five million people who are spending time in spaces con, um, curated or in, incentivized or inspired yeah. by by new public or well so so we want to make it easier for people and especially for kind of the usually when there's a healthy heterogeneous community it's there's like a person or a few people who make it happen and so we want to be, make those people's lives easier by providing them with kind of open source tools and design patterns that help them do that. And that's a big departure from the way that we have organized. You have to ask yourself a whole bunch of questions in order to do that well. So we're, we're used to kind of deferring to Mark Zuckerberg to say, like, here's what uh, content is okay and not okay. Um, how do we facilitate without making it annoying or laborious communities doing that for themselves and setting their guidelines for themselves and making that transparent to everyone for themselves. Um, that's, that's achievable, right? And, um, and in the meantime, these infrastructures, the sort of open protocols like email that uh, uh, can make this all sort of scalable um, are really coming along. And so we want to help kind of aid that effort by making it uh, easier for people to solve actual community problems with those kinds of tools. Um, so. 10 years from now, people are part of a bunch of, of fora that are meaningful for them, that help them in their lives, that provide some information or some context that they wouldn't otherwise have. And probably, honestly, like no one's ever going to, if if we do this job well, it'll sort of be pretty mundane, right? Like it's not going to be, people just, oh, there. Are, I guess there are an ads that are distorting my experience on this platform. I'm just connecting with people. Um, but people will be focused on the content, and that's great. Like I, I think um, you know, uh, uh, it, it, I think if we're doing our job well, what that feels like is just a society where people are connecting with each other about the problems in front of them, rather than being impeded by the technologies in front of them. 
So the business model is nonprofit. You, you have to get funders to give you the money to build this. Is there a, is there a different business model that might? Yeah. Well, so uh, I think we are part of. We're a nonprofit, but we're aiding a whole kind of cohort of new startups. Some of which are nonprofit. Some of which are kind of B Corp type organizations. Some of which have capped, you know, uh, revenues, but all of which sort of renounce the goal of ever being the one uh, tower of Sauron looming over the digital landscape, um, you know, and are trying to figure out a different model. I mean, I just think I've been very influenced also by Eleanor Ostrom, who's an economist, um, yeah. you know, and and the, the thing I love about her is, one, I read The Tragedy of the Commons as a as a college student and thought, oh, this is true about humanity. And her whole thing is like, no, it's not true. Like, people can actually be really good at Magnesian comments. We've done it for millennia. We've done it in all sorts of different contexts. And um, there are some common things about how people do that. Uh, And, you know, there's no panacea. There's no one uh, magical solution to commons management. It depends on the situation. It depends on the community. You need to have a lot of local ability in order to like manage it well. And so that's, I want to kind of like bring that thought to digital space, which is we're not going to crack the top down algorithm that's going to make the internet good. We've got to think about how do we support kind of an ecosystem of spaces and algorithms that allow us to do the different things that we need to do in sort of complicated human lives. Do you think humans need part of that to be face-to-face versus digital? Yeah, I think face-to-face is really good and important. Like, I, I'm I'm not at all digital to the exclusion of face-to-face, but I, I actually think they can really reinforce each other. So, you know, it's like I go to school pickup, not to, not to linger too long on the school's example, right. but I go to school pickup and everyone's literally, like, standing there alone looking at their phones Partly because, like, you don't really know the other parents. Partly because, like, you don't have the the relationships. And, you know, so these are things where, like, when I get to know someone, it's much easier to then strike up a conversation offline. Um, but sometimes that's going to happen in a digital place first. And so mm-hmm. I, I don't think that they have to be opposed to each other. I think they can actually support each other. And that's especially true, by the way, like, I'm going to tend in a physical space to be more comfortable talking to people who seem like me, who seem to share a class or or race background. So if we want to, if we want to seize on the opportunity of building kind of cross group, cross race, cross class spaces, building supports where we all get to know each other a little bit digitally could be a really successful way to do that. If that was what we were building toward, if that was what we were optimizing for. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. So one last sort of line here, briefly, if I can. Um, yeah. been very generous with your time. So you can't obviously predict exactly how all these different spaces are going to develop, and and we're all going to be surprised. Is there one or are there one or two examples of like things you would bet surprise us the most pretty soon? Like where you say this type of new public. Um, is going to enter a place where a lot of people very quickly say, oh, wow, that's something. Um, mm. And it's something not necessarily great for Republican Democratic politics, but great for building community or whatever. Is there Are there things you're, you, you're most excited about right now? I do think, like, there's, I think, rethinking sort of 
what does a healthy digital local environment look like? Is like we've gotten to the end of this. I think for a long time we were sort of in this like, well, local newspapers are dying, but maybe we should save them, or what are we going to do? I think there's this opportunity to re envision yeah, the whole kind of digital ecosystem that a local community needs and start to think about how to do that. I'm starting to see little bits and pieces of that happen all over the place. And this is to me like, like I spend a lot of the time thinking about like, okay, it's 2050 and we have healthy uh, democratic pluralism, you know, around the world. Like, how did it happen? (laughs) And um, going back to the start of our conversation, like I can't imagine that it happens because we like laboriously keep patching the holes that keep popping in various parts of our current ecosystem. Yeah. Like n- not just Facebook, but like our whole system of governance feels like mm-hmm. it was it was never built for multiracial or power sharing. It was never built for the newspaper, let alone the internet. (laughs) And now we're trying to like slowly kind of like retrofit it. Like that's never going to happen. But what I think can happen is that there's an efflorescence of, you know, experiments that are happening in digital spaces where we crack some things about how to do self-governance and how to do pluralism in those spaces. And that that then can reach scale much more quickly and then be applied backwards to our bigger government, you know, sort of our offline governance problems. Like, I know that sounds kind of wacky, but like, my hope is that like, we figure out something about Minecraft server governance that every 10 year old in the world, you know, like learns and just accepts as natural. Like, oh, you don't do liquid Minecraft governance? Like, what kind of society is this? And then that's like kind of the pathway actually to sort of some, some offline breakthroughs. So could be wacky, but like I, I, I have a, I'm seeing a lot of those sparks, right? And I feel like um, that's that's a much more exciting place to be than just kind of like fighting fighting the bad stuff. So the feedback from the digital to the physical world, because we can experiment with the digital world and discover new ways, um, is is the promise. I I hope it does. It does make sense that the challenge is. This is a fine non non-profit business model, um, so to speak. Yeah. And the question is just whether it can stand up next to these poisonous for-profit business models. That, yeah. You know, obviously. Well, I you know, I should say, like, I think some there's a regulatory piece of that also. Like, New Public isn't focused mm-hmm. on it, but I think, like, th- there's no question that there's, like, some regulation that needs to be put in place as well. And especially as we move into kind of like mass consumer AI world, we need to be thinking really carefully about uh, like some of these sort of personalization questions may look quaint compared to what we're moving into <laughs> as far as, yes. uh, you know. So uh, my, my point is only that we need to regulate toward, not just away from. So how do we build the kinds of um, robust ecosystems that we want rather than just try to constrain the existing entities. And I feel like that's that's what I'm suggesting. So where do you see the best regulatory thought right now? Like, is there something that's exciting, some place where that's happening in an exciting way? Because I feel mm. like... I mean, I do think it's not, it doesn't solve all the problems. But I think uh, pushing toward... Uh, kind of more interop- interoperability is an interesting move right now. 
because I think it breaks up some of the kind of like network monopoly that's left that keeps us locked into. Yeah, I mean, in other words, right now with Blue Sky or with Mastodon, you kind of can choose like, well, do I want centralized advertising run Twitter or do I want not centralized, not advertising run Twitter? Mm -hmm. And it's more or less the same Mm -hmm. service. Mm -hmm. What you're missing is the ability to pull people over. So I do think, you know, kind of that's one place that I think you could write the regulation relatively relatively easily that would make it much more easy to sit in a more collectively owned place and still participate in or or pull out some of the information that you want from these other networks without the like distorting lens. Yeah. And if the regulations allowed to exist, I think one of the scariest things in this space is the work that Google funded a decade ago to get the courts to see or declare that um, these technologies, these algorithms were First Amendment protected technologies. Mm -hmm. And so the capacity of government to regulate them is only if they can get over the hurdles of the First Amendment, which means you can't regulate them. Um, Yeah. And if we boxed ourselves into that, especially now with the new AIs layered on top, then I think we're in serious trouble. Yeah. I mean, it's a conversation for another time, but I am just trying to get my head around like, what what is it going to be like to really fully 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 be embedded in a chat gpt style browsing system that is that has some memory about what i like like this is sort of like the filter bubble plus yes which is like yeah here's the level of readability or language i want and here's the kinds of sources i trust and just remember all of that and then never bother me about it again feels like tantalizingly close to possible and really disruptive in terms of what it means for all of these questions that we talked about. So that's yeah. that's the next set of okay, questions. That's the next that's the next <laughs> conversation. I'm I'm so grateful for your time, Eli. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm uh, grateful. Thank you so much for your work. Well likewise. And and thanks for, you know, continuing to drive this conversation forward over the years. Like I, I really appreciate that about you. So I appreciate that. This has been the 19th episode of season five of the podcast Another Way, produced by Equal Citizens and made physically by hand by Josh Elstro of Elstro Productions. Find us on the internets at equalcitizens.us. Give us your thoughts, your feedback, share this podcast, share the ideas this podcast is spreading. And of course, share your wealth, if you can, with us. What I do, I do pro bono, but not everyone working here can work pro bono. You can help keep us going by donating at equalcitizens.us. Thanks again for listening. Stay tuned for the next episode.